Welcome to the Manufacturing IT Podcast, where we talk with leaders across Industry 4.0 and discover the latest technology and automation. This podcast is for anyone with Industry 4.0, whether you're an MES engineer or head of automation. Make sure you tune in and enjoy the episode. Before we get into it, hit like and subscribe, and don't forget to comment and add your views. The Manufacturing IT Podcast is brought to you by Manufacturing IT Recruitment. Enjoy the episode. Robin, good morning and uh, welcome to the Manufacturing IT Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. You and I spoke a little bit last year and I thought who better than to get a guest on this uh, this episode and we could talk a little bit about your thoughts for manufacturing IT, you're very involved in the sector and space, and I thought my audience would be would be keen to hear what you've got to say. So without further ado, please introduce yourself and, and tell us all a little bit more about who you are and, and where you're working and what you do. Hi, Daniel. Yeah, thanks again for having me. And I think there's a lot to discuss between manufacturing and talent and, and people, given that it's my core topic. Quickly about me, my name is Robin. I studied industrial engineering and management, kind of a double degree in southern Germany. I spent four and a half years working at Point9 Capital, an early stage venture capital investor focused on B2B software and marketplaces, where I spent most of my time on manufacturing. And then I quit my job in the end of last year because I got so passionate about manufacturing that I want to dedicate my whole time to it. And throughout all the time when I was working at Point9 and investing in various startups, one particular problem occurred to me quite often, which is the so-called skills gap meaning that many manufacturing companies today already face a big gap in their workforce with the skills they need and also with the skills they have today. And this problem only will get bigger. And many companies, at least from like what I, and when I was talking to loads of people, did not really know how to solve it. And so <laughs> I didn't see any solutions in the market. And yeah, I fall in love with the problem and basically started out on February now to work on, uh, on Avio. That's how, how the company is called, uh, where we try to help these companies to solve the skills gap and up-level their current workforce from within, because we really believe that the learning and development is one of the key areas. And to finish up, I'm also writing about manufacturing since three years. I started a newsletter called The Future of Manufacturing with a few thousand subscribers. And this also, I think, was more like a coincidence, uh, but <laughs> developed nicely. And I think that's also somehow how we got connected at some point. Yeah. No, thanks for the intro. I think it's a super interesting space at the moment. There, there's so much kind of transformation as we kind of digitize more processes. But but as you're dead right, the, the kind of skills gap from, from my perspective is something that I, I see firsthand on a day-to-day basis. The, the demand for, for engineers, the demand for consultants, the demand for, for, for deep knowledge in, in kind of new technologies is, is just not there. And, you know, when, when people are hired, they add extreme value to the business, but it's, it's really kind of closing that gap between what people know what they don't know and how we get them to the next level. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about this problem, and it's a little bit unfortunate, but I think it is what it is, it's every market trend I know will just make the problem bigger, right? (laughs) On the one hand, you know, we have new technologies, the world is moving faster, there's more competition. If you listen to Porsche, for example, they will tell you our new competitors are the tech companies. Now, Apple is coming to Germany, opening up a big office. Ford built a factory here in, in Germany. Tesla, just one hour north from Berlin, where I'm sitting now, is building a factory. And they all compete for the same talent. And mm. I think every market trend I'm seeing, at least, will only make the problem bigger. So it's, it's fascinating to work on this, but it's also a little bit frightening. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And for me, I've, I've worked in the kind of German market for a number of years now, and uh, I find there's, there's some really exciting candidates there, some really exciting companies doing cool things. But um, t tell us a little bit about why Germany is such a hub for these companies and, and why so many of these companies are looking to, to build plants or at least their kind of European campuses uh, there. If you ask this, I think what's interesting is that maybe today it is a hub. I think one question will be, will it be still a manufacturing hub, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years? Yeah. I hope so. But uh, <laughs> I think in order to, to be there, uh, I think we really need to speed up on, you know, innovation, investing more capital into like new, new things and, and also our people. I think Germany has a very interesting history when it comes to manufacturing. We have many household brands here. Um, automotive, of course, is like a very big, important industry, also for our society. We gain a lot of wealth. From, from these companies. And so there's a lot of like talent in manufacturing yeah. uh, and loads of engineers. We have great universities. Germany in, in general is like a big economy and just a big pool of, of people to employ. That said, I think it's also an interesting location in Europe, given, you know, it's, it's quite central. There's a few key countries left and right, which also have quite big economies. And so today, I think from a strategic perspective for many US companies, it makes a lot of sense due to these reasons. The question though is, you know, how will this be in a more remote world in the next 10 years? And would love to hear also your thoughts, you know, do manufacturing companies actually hire remotely or is it still, you know, even though COVID happened in the last 12 months, it's still like a new thing and they tried maybe out. And of course there's jobs, you know, where you need to be in the factory. Mm. How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, it, that, that's a really interesting one. I think in some ways it's gone full circle. I mean, 12, 15 months ago, the world was shutting down, everybody working remotely. And, and that seems to be a huge pull for candidates. You know, can I work remotely? Do I need to be located in country? And where I recruit, which is specifically around the kind of MES and, um, you know, the integration of those systems, there definitely has been the trend where companies are allowing and giving the freedom for their employees to work remotely, to be based. What I'm finding is as long as the candidate is located in country, which basically would mean if they needed to get to site quickly, that could happen. Mm -hmm. That's becoming quite a big trend now. What, what I'm finding from a lot of candidates, however, is that they're quite keen to, to be located wherever and to have that kind of maybe digital nomad background where as long as they have their laptop and, and a good broadband connection, that they can be locating whatever country and plug in and do the work. But um, it, there's definitely a lot more freedom from companies now allowing that. And, you know, I think it takes a while for the trust to be built that um, yes. companies can can give their employees the trust and the empowerment to work remotely and actually to deliver. So as long as we continue getting good good project delivery and capability being proven, um, long may it continue because um, I'll be honest, from a recruitment perspective, it's it makes my life a lot easier when um, clients are not looking for candidates in a specific town or city. It, it definitely kind of increases the talent pool. And, and I think as the world gets smaller with, with more travel and more kind of, you know, distributed teams, it, it opens up their talent pools as well to, to kind of get broader candidates who are, you know, located in different different cities and countries. Yeah, for sure. And if you we come back to Germany, I think many of these companies they are not located in the big cities. Yeah, uh, in southern Germany, right? And there's a lot of companies that are really like in the countryside. And good luck hiring now. You know, <laughs> from, from top universities, when yeah. they have a choice to work for a big tech company such as Apple or Amazon, if they maybe want to work in the city, not move to the countryside. So I actually don't see any other way around than at least hiring some of the people when it's possible, of course. Yeah. Also remotely for these kind of people. 
But what, what I found also is that the, the more empowered the staff feel, so so even just to kind of take it slightly away from working remotely, like things like uh, giving employees unlimited holiday. Now, for some companies, they, they might think that all their, their sales, their, their force, their workforce is just going to work fully on holiday, no productivity, everything goes to slow down. But what I found is companies who offer that actually find that their employees take less holiday and are actually more plugged into work. And it's kind of almost a reverse psychology where giving someone giving someone unlimited something actually makes them want it less. And, and again, I think also the remote level, giving someone the freedom to, to work remotely, work from wherever, actually kind of make them keen to, to make sure they do deliver a higher level of work to kind of keep that perk and keep that freedom. And empowerment, I think, is a very strong word and a very strong opportunity you can give to people. And if you work in tech, that's something you take for granted, right? You usually have a lot of empowerment. Um, you probably can choose what you want to learn. You can go to a conference if you want. You can speak up loudly. Manufacturing mm. is still an industry that's very much managed top down, right? yeah. um, where, where people maybe do not have the freedom to, let's say, go to the conference they would like. They need to ask a manager. They need to ask for permission if they want to write a blog post about something and so on. And so it's these little things, but I accounted them a lot in the last few years where I'm thinking there has to be a much, much strong, stronger shift to empower these people because if you won't empower them, I think some of them will leave for sure. And I have one very strong thesis, which is manufacturing companies, the only way actually for them to survive is to upload their current workforce because they won't be able to hire the very best talent and it's, they won't solve the skills gap just by hiring externally. Yeah. Would you agree? Or maybe you have a different view. Would love to. No, I, I think it's really interesting. And naturally, as um, as tech companies take more and more footsteps in towards manufacturing and sell their subscription models, it's far. What I'm finding, you know, when you sell subscription software, it's much easier to scale the business. So, so what that means from a, from a recruitment side of what I found is that these companies can afford to pay much higher salaries to their employees, where the manufacturing. Obviously, you're building a physical asset or whatever it might be. It's a lot harder to scale the business and takes more time and investment. So there is started to become a bit of a salary gap between the manufacturing companies and the tech companies. And as the tech companies take more steps into manufacturing, that that gap might become more of an issue. So I think things like empowerment and giving people the freedom to to have personal growth, professional development, and to kind of you know follow their own path rather than having this rigid you know top down structure as you mentioned. I think is a value add that, that can be quite easily introduced to, to, to the kind of working culture. That's a very good point indeed. I, I want to take you back, Robin, just to say you said, you, you said you're super passionate about manufacturing and you and I have definitely had this conversation before about, you know, sexy manufacturing, it being interesting, but, but look, I'm really keen to know where your passion is for manufacturing comes from, why you're passionate and, and maybe if you can break it down into kind of the specific area that you're passionate about. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this question a lot because I had a lot of discussions also in the recent month with people where we discussed the question, why actually is manufacturing not cool? And how can we make it cool again? Because if you, if you ask young people and, and if you ask you know, fresh graduates and so on, the share of people who want to work in the sector is definitely not increasing, uh, mm-hmm. rather decreasing, which is a big problem again for, for the whole industry. And it's somehow a little bit, it's actually very sad, right? Because it is an, an exciting industry. There's a lot of stuff happening. Everything we all have here, you know, set up from the camera to our iPhone to the computer, it's it's all manufactured. Every part is somehow manufactured. There's a there's a value chain behind it, there's a supply chain behind it. It's a very complex, complex industry, but everything in the end is like somehow manufactured. And I think the industry 
and this is a very, let's say, society point of view, but it, it has been a very fundamental and important industry for the people in Europe and in Germany. And where I think a lot of the wealth and, and why our society probably is where it is, is really coming from this industry. And I think in the next decades, if we do not help this industry to become more innovative, to become more digital, we'll lose a lot of jobs. And in the end, I think this means we'll lose a lot of wealth to other countries, which again, I think is a, is a big problem for our society. And so I think what, what really bothers me is that for me, it's so obvious. For me, it's completely obvious <laughs> what we have to do, but it really yeah. bothers me where we still stand. And I'm also, I'm a bit fed up with, you know, there's a lot of talking going on about digitalization. I think Industry 4.0 is now 10 years old. And if you look what happened, not that much actually happened. And I know it's, it's a very complex topic, right? And it's, it's really not easy to do that. And it's, I have incredibly respect from turning a very big company, you know, that has been working for the last decades with the same strategy and have been very successful. Now, you know, thinking more radically how you actually see the future and how you maybe have to also empower your workforce and do all these transformations. So it's, it's a super hard challenge. But I think there has been like a, a few wake-up calls in the last few years. And COVID again, I think, was one where I think the industry should move faster into a direction to become more innovative again, to empower more people and to become more digitally. Otherwise, this will mean we'll, we'll lose a, a lot of jobs, we'll lose a lot of wealth, and in the end, there will be, hopefully not too many, but there will be companies who will probably die very slowly and painfully yeah. if they don't manage to, to, to survive this, this transformation. No, but I, I think definitely you mentioned COVID, obviously, the last kind of 12, 18 months maybe with COVID and the whole... Um, the whole disruption that's caused it. I, I think it's brought forward a lot of innovation for companies and also advanced their digital transformation strategy. Now, one of the things I find really interesting is is, is hearing about how these companies are transforming and, and the level of new automation and tools they're bringing on board. And I always find it fascinating to, to kind of be at the forefront of, of the kind of disruptive tech and such. And I know this is something you've done as well. I've seen a couple of the uh, documents you've you shared, which breaks down disruptive tech for the space. What do you find interesting about some of the new tools and some of the new kind of softwares and gadgets and bits and pieces that are coming into the space? I think there's a big debate often about automating jobs. And, you know, robots will take all our, our, our jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're trying to help to recruit people, right? So I think yeah. <laughs> that this won't, like people won't become obsolete in factories anytime soon. Otherwise, your job would be gone as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe in this at all. I think the media is also drawing a wrong picture often. And, and also like a, let's say a picture, an image of fear, which I think is very misleading. And so what I actually really like about it that many technologies and, and, and gadgets and, and also applications in the end, again, play a key part in empowering the workforce. Yeah. To make you know the job of the people easier, to make it maybe less repetitive, to help them to let's say stay healthy because you have for example an exoskeleton that helps you you know to lift very heavy weight, and so your back doesn't get hurt at, uh, all the time. And so, I think the combination of having people who are very creative problem solvers and can solve very complex tasks together with technology that can enable to automate easy to do tasks, I think is a yeah. really interesting combination. Where I think manufacturing is one of industries where this combination is most applicable most likely and I think that's very fascinating together with the speed of the, how technology actually changes and something that I'm very optimistic and also very bullish about and this is more I think a long-term view is the software stack in the factory so if you think about tech companies today all of them have like kind of like a software stack you know from CRM ERP where they manage their employees where they manage salary and so on and factories 
it's still more like a LAN party where, you know, kind of everybody brought his own server that somehow connected with each <laughs> other. It's like how the machines in the shop, in, on the shop floor are today. But I think what will be very exciting once you somehow have all of this in the cloud and you have like a software stack within the factory, it also gets much easier to build applications just on top of this, right? Like you build an yes, application definitely. for maintenance, you build an application for predictive analytics, I don't know, for your workers to read the manuals and so on. The problem is we're not there yet, right? Yeah. We're not that well connected yet. We have to get the data out of the machine. We even have to first interpret the data to actually understand what it means. You have to build this data lake, the data layer, where all of this comes together. Some factories, I mean, you're recruiting for MES, people who work yeah. in systems. There's a big number of companies that <laughs> don't even have an MES today. So that's where we yeah. stand. I know it's it's crazy. So I, I spoke with Jens Wobleyer from from Wareham or, or Coba Pharma Software recently, and, and we were talking about maybe only 40% of our pharma manufacturers only having an MES system. So to me, it blows my mind that that there's 60% of pharma manufacturers who are who are still implementing paper in the factory for, for process and uh, everything. So it's crazy how in, in some ways companies have totally adopted and created a full transformation and everything is automated in the cloud with, with uh, IT infrastructure. But then there's companies who are still working on an Excel document or, or, or writing recipes on paper and it, it blows my mind. <laughs> and I understand it somehow because you know it has worked in the past. So what can go wrong? It has worked in the past, somehow at least, and many factories mm. have been trying to optimize you know, from year to year and, and improve things left and right, but now it's a much bigger ship where you know, it takes some investment, it takes time until you see the value, and it's also hard from having this technology first kind of view to understand more the problems you need to solve and the value. So we were talking in the course, so I'm doing a course at the moment for digital manufacturing, digital transformation manufacturing, where we talk a lot about the buying behavior. And many of pilots uh, that have been done in the past few years have always been, or most of them have been from a technology point of view, as new technology, AI, blockchain, IoT, you name it. Let's just try it and learn. And then find a problem actually that this technology can solve rather than you know finding a problem first or where there's a big <laughs> room for improvement and then going out and maybe seeing is there a good technology or even like a solution that can solve this problem how we want it. It was the case. It's, it's true. I think it's a really interesting one because it's the whole um, whole chicken and the egg scenario because in, in certain factories, if we do what we've always done, we get the same results. So there definitely is an inertia to, to change and there definitely is a feeling that you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So who leads the transformation? Is it the company selling the tech saying, look, guys, in the factories, there is a better way? Or is it the guys in the factory saying there is an issue and looking for the tech companies to solve it? And I think that breakdown is something that I see sometimes between companies seeing the shiny new tech or, or hearing about what, what a competitor X, Y, and Z are doing and, and thinking we need to keep up or at least have you know some skin in the game with, with an IoT platform or whatever it might be. But then it's 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 really who leads that transformation and where the problem comes from that I see. Yeah, in my in my point of view, the most successful companies that are out there, they push innovation top down and bottom up. Which yeah. is, you know, you have C level executives who have a clear vision how to digitize their business for the next five or ten years. And then they also, and again, we're here talking about empowerment again, they empower mm. their workforce to work together on that vision. How can we digitize our business? What can we work on? They give them room to try things out, to experiment. They give them budget. And I think the only way actually is to, to have both top-down and bottom-up. 
if you only have bottom up, people will get frustrated because they don't get the budget. They don't get maybe the, the, <laughs> yeah. the time to try things out. Yeah. If you only have the C-level vision, it doesn't work because you need your people who are actually working on the stuff, who know how to solve these problems and who know the pain firsthand and who can look for solutions that then fit together to accomplish yeah. this digital vision. Yeah, no, totally. And, and again, as you say, it circles back to that empowerment level. If you're giving the employees the space to think about innovation, think about what problems can be solved, because often the top, obviously, the issues that at executive level are, are sometimes missing or missing the understanding or the context of the problem on the shop floor or in the factory. So having the people on in that space identify the issue and look for a solution and at least feel like their voice is being heard, identifying a possible outcome or, or how the solution can be solved, it definitely makes a big difference, I think. Yes, it's, Some a, company it's a new concept. It's not a new concept. If you think about lean manufacturing, that's actually what it is about, right? The people who are working on these topics actually can improve and continuously improve the system or the factory as a whole. And I mean, lean manufacturing is, is quite quite old today. so. It's nothing, <laughs> but, but, but still I think some companies still struggle to, to implement that kind of thinking or, or way of management. But, it, but is that a whole scenario? It's a case of, look, lean manufacturing was, was something everybody bought into and something that a lot of companies really focused on. But was that really a case of something they truly believed in at their core? Or was it a case of we need to show that we're doing this to, to kind of look like we're a company for the future, a company looking to attract the top talents? And it, it's, it's an easy badge to, to, to pin to the chest and say, we, we focus on this, we focus on that. But, but are they truly believing that? Is that truly kind of the core values? And is that something that the actual staff really feel like or is it you know a secondary priority i guess it really depends on the company <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's hard to say maybe i'm also too young yeah same <laughs> i didn't know you know how, how it actually went on uh, i only know it from anecdotes and people who were telling me about it but in the end i think it really depends on the company because i think there are some companies who really believe into it and really implement on a let's say company-wide basis where they have like lean management training still every year for all of their stuff so there's there's both examples i would i would say no agreed agreed and robin i just want to switch gears and, and talk about the the skills gap obviously it's it's an area that's close to my heart i'm a recruiter through and through i'm you know i created a podcast to, to hopefully add value to the, the manufacturing community and, and kind of bridge that gap between manufacturing and software and such and and i really am passionate about that and, and i know you are as well so you know what are you doing and what are your thoughts on that skills gap and, and how do we kind of slightly bridge that so first of all what's interesting for me is that many people talk about the skills gap and they somehow know or feel there is a big gap in their workforce but then if you ask them hey what exactly is this gap yeah what are exactly the skills you are missing what are the top three roles you are missing it gets very blurry and you don't yep. get very precise answers so i think it starts already with companies managers have a feeling maybe that you know their workforce is not complete but they don't have a full picture actually what they have today and what they need in the next five years. Yeah. It's the first step having this kind of like assessment and it's, it's very hard because I think it can get very complex and the way I see it, how to solve it is more focusing on career path, you know, like a few roles. I wouldn't make it too complex and break it down by very specific skills. So assessment is the first part. I think then the second would be like, okay, how do you get there? You know, so if you know already, these are kind of like the roles and profiles you, you, you need. Then you can think yeah. about, okay, I can get there by hiring all these people externally, which in the end probably will cost you a lot of money, a lot of time, and you don't even know if it's possible. Or you can see, um, hey, I have a very good workforce today. They know the culture, they know the processes, 
you know, they like to work here. Are there some of the people actually who I can get to these kind of roles? And this can be, you know, by offering, let's say, micro degrees, nano degrees, working with education partners together. It's not, you know, only like watching a few YouTube videos and then you know, <laughs> I think it's a bit more yeah. transformative. So we talk more a little bit about additionally more reskilling than upskilling, I would say. And what's interesting, I think, is that sometimes people assume, I think, for example, let's say there's a big gap in software development, right? It's everybody yeah. knows it. Yeah. Volkswagen is very vocal about this. They say they need 10,000 software developers in the next two years. <laughs> they won't be able to hire them on externally. It's, it's just not possible. And, and even, and that's very interesting, I think, the, the chairman of Volkswagen, Herbert Dies, mentioned that to become a software developer, you don't need a degree today anymore. Okay. I mean, from a board member of one of the biggest automotive companies, I think it's, it's quite a, a very strong word, a sentence, yes. which I think is really interesting. And, but what I'll say with this is, it's, I think the thing about rescaling is something where you think, of, we need to think about what are the skills that people have today and what are maybe adjacent roles where you can bring these people to. So I don't think, you know, a 55 year old machinist cannot become a software developer. I think it's yeah. probably impossible. Uh, and maybe there's a few who, where it is possible, but in the end, you know, the skills maybe is too, of a diff too big of a difference. Maybe the person don't want another job for the last few years she's working at. So, but if you think about, you know, what are maybe some skills where, where people, you know, that have today that can fit, let's say, to a role that is somehow adjacent. I think one example I always make is if you have truck driver, truck driver will become more obsolete in the next decade to come. I think it's a fact. Yeah. And so maybe you cannot reskill every truck driver to become a software developer. But truck drivers are very good at navigating complex hardware systems. So maybe what you can do is actually reskilling a truck driver to become a drone pilot. Yeah. And I think that's a little bit how we have to think about these kind of like roles. So you cannot, you know, reskill everybody to become a software developer. But what are roles maybe that, that you need and what do you have in the current workforce and what are maybe some adjacent career path that you then can offer your workforce and work together with education partners basically to bring these people there. And that's yeah. a little bit, you know, how I'm thinking about how we're, we're also building our, our company. It's very early, but that's a little bit my, my thinking about how to solve this problem. Yeah, no, it, it's really interesting. I saw, I saw one on LinkedIn recently about how kind of photographers who, who used to shoot, you know, be it, be it kind of nature films or whatever it might be, there was a guy flying a helicopter, there's a guy hanging out the, the window with a big camera. And in the last kind of five, 10 years or so, that, that, that whole job has completely gone because now someone can stand on the floor and control the drone from their iPhone or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's how quickly the technology is advancing. So you're right, you're kind of maybe not taking people from what they're doing now and, and completely bringing them to what we need. But there's got to be that natural conveyor of, of where can this person's skill set be utilized in the next generation of, of the workforce? Yes, and I think they have to, there has to be a, a bigger discussion and companies also need to discuss this in more detail. You know, what are future roles that are needed? Let's say maybe, you know, there's something which is called like a digital twin engineer yeah. or, or some, something like this, right? Or, or somebody who's working on, let's say, a vehicle data analyst because now there's so much data in cars that you yeah. get autonomous driving and everything. So I think there has to be more people thinking about this kind of like future roles and what are maybe, you know, some of the core skills you need and then understanding, you know, some of the career path actually, how you can bring people to these kind of like roles. And what it's interesting for me that some of the companies, the smaller ones in particularly, if they think about training and development, they're just starting to, to roll out like a learning management system, you know, or like some of the video courses. And of course you need to do this. I think employees are demanding this today. But I think this is not solving the core problem, right? It has yeah. to be more transformative. It has to be seen from a more holistic point of view. 
And I think the big companies, some of them are doing really, really interesting initiatives and doing a lot of stuff there already. But for the smaller ones, it's still like a very new problem. They also don't have the problem maybe to that extent compared to like the very big automotive companies, for example. Yeah. But I think they will all get there at some point. And I think the, the earlier you think about it, at least, the, the earlier you think about, you know, your culture, empowerment, the vision, all the stuff we discussed, probably the better it is because you're trying to get more and more ready for what's, what's to come. And maybe to finish up on this, what's interesting, I think, is many people think about transformation as one transformation, you know? So we work <laughs> on transformation. Now in two years, we're done. Like, you will never be done. I can tell you, you will never be done. Right? And this will be a transformation all over again. Every year, you have to transform something. So you will never be done. And I think this is something which I think is also like some, you know, part of the mindset that people um, need to have. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and you, you mentioned kind of thinking about the jobs that will be needed, you know, digital twin consultant. I, I guess from my side, I am seeing traditional roles still being there, of course, but, but I'm seeing now, you know, new roles. And the one that keeps coming across my desk or, or keep people keep speaking to me about it is a you know, the, the, the job title changes, but essentially an industry 4.0 consultant. And, um, you know, when, when we start scratching the surface, well, what does that actually mean? We're talking about someone who has a deep knowledge of manufacturing, a deep knowledge of IT and, and all the different technologies in between that. And, and I think it's a, it's a very hard role to get someone to fulfill because you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of the times yeah. these consultants might come from a company who have done it a certain way really moving to a new company it's it's complete different different idea and the, the ideas that you bring are, are kind of maybe not not as cutting edge or not as uh, relevant to, to the new company as such and it's so hard to find these people there's a huge demand for somebody who can come in and just solve all of the questions and just be the oracle and be the be the evangelist for for this transformation but but i don't think it's as easy as that and you know i think there might be four or five people that could be roped in to do that role and rather than condense it to one person it, it probably would be better to hire a team of four or five and the more feel feel that they can bring their, their unique experience to to, to do that for sure. And I think many companies, they won't solve this problem only by themselves, right? That's why they need to have partners, either for recruitment, where, where they work with you for training, for learning and development. And I think that's also fine, right? It's such a big, big challenge that it's probably impossible to solve it um, <laughs> on your own. Even I think, and, and that's maybe a little bit German. And I have to quote one, one, one founder here who sells a software. It's a guy from the US who sells software to manufacturing companies. Where he says, if he has to sell in Germany, he always has to do one thing that he calls rejection management. <laughs> the answer he's getting usually is like, yeah, it doesn't work. Or are we doing it ourselves? Yeah. So, you know, it, and I think it, it reflects a little bit the mindset of some companies. So I think there's some yeah. truth to it. And also I think, you know, it's, it's also, I think, at the heart of an engineer, they, they are usually a perfectionist. Right? So it has yeah. to be perfect. It has to like, work very smoothly. And I mean, look at the cars, look at the machines people produce. They are perfect. So yeah. No, I also understand where they're coming from. And again, it's a big mindset shift. I think now that, you know, things just like move faster. So maybe everything cannot be perfect anymore to the extent yeah. it has been in the last decade. No, definitely, Robin. Look, and, and I think this has been a great chat. And I think this is a topic that will roll on. And it, it's a lot of stuff that we discussed that there is no solution to yet. It's it's an ever-evolving landscape. And then I, I just want to finish on the fact that um, my audience are going to be keen to, to know more about your newsletter. It's, it's, it's a newsletter I've had for a couple of months now. And I read the episodes and the, the articles. And it, it's really interesting. So, look, to finish, please um, share a little bit more about your newsletter. And uh, in the comments after, I'll, I'll, I'll share where people can follow and, and sign up but uh, yeah share a little bit about it cool yeah so 
maybe I start with an anecdote because I started talking <laughs> about digital manufacturing in 2017. And when I wrote the first post, people were reaching out and like, hey, this is really interesting. Can you share some more of your readings, you know, in a few links? And so initially in early 2018, I just, you know, shared a few links with a few friends, basically, of what I'm reading. And then suddenly more and more people signed up. And, and so I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then I, you know, started writing a little bit more on a monthly basis, not only sending links, but sending, let's say, a quick summary of actually the post. And that's mm -hmm. how newsletter was born back then. And I started to, to call it the future manufacturing, which is still the, the name of it today. And so it started growing over the years now, and I kept on doing it basically every month. And so the newsletter covers two topics, I would say. One is like general news about the industry, you know, some of, let's say, the big announcements that, that are happening, everything like more on digital manufacturing, you know, what maybe like a new automotive planet gets built or, or some of the core problems like the skills gap. I like just like uh, recently in my last edition, there was a big article again about the skills gap and shortage of workers in the US, which to quote it is a $1 trillion problem. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a sizable problem, if you ask yeah. me. And then the second section is more, you know, about industrial startups. So that's, you know, where I'm coming from, from my work with Point9, the work I'm doing today, you know, what's happening, let's say, with new companies in that space, what are some funding rounds, you know, what are new companies that are born. Also, I think which is interesting because it somehow fills a gap. There's a lot of, let's say, material out there on, you know, Industry 4.0 and future trends and technologies. But like having this overview of industrial startups, what's working, what's maybe not working so well, where there's a lot of money at the moment is somehow uh, something that resonates with people and that I send around every month just to give people an overview of what happened in the last two weeks. Yeah. No, and I find it super interesting. And what I'll do in the comments below the episode, I'll, I'll share a link to, to where people can subscribe. Robin. But look, it's, it's been great talking. And, uh, you know, a couple of times we spoke now, I'm, I'm enthused after we finished talking and, you know, your, your passion comes through. So look, thanks for joining us on. Yeah, good. Thanks for joining us on the Manufacturing IT podcast. And uh, yeah, we're, we're sure to speak again, Robin. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. My pleasure. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Manufacturing IT Podcast. Don't forget, hit like and subscribe and add your comments below. The podcast is brought to you by Manufacturing IT Recruitment. Get in touch with Daniel Langley if you're looking for a new role or if you'd like to add talent to your team.